Mullets and Money. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello, and how are you today? I'm doing quite well. It's Jan, and we're also joined by... Andy Jones. Andy Jones, our Metals and Mining Analyst. And why are you joining us today, Andy? We're, <coughs> well, uh, it's a rhetorical question. We have uh, an interview that uh, uh, Andy and I got a couple weeks ago with the CEO of Polymetal, uh, Vitali Nessis. Uh, Andy has also been traveling around. He was in Poland recently. And we figured he's just really been talking steel. He talked a little bit about iron. He talked about nickel. Actually, he's talked about a lot now that I, that I name it. But one of the things is, that, are miss, that is missing is copper and gold. So we know how much you like Spandau Ballet. So we're going to talk about gold today. Uh, but maybe first, uh, which I should also say, I, I'm going to stop everything. Jonathan has a note out on uh, Romanian oil and gas, which yes. we will touch on. Mm -hmm. Um, always an interesting, exciting place to invest, yeah. sometimes for the wrong reasons. Yes. I, I almost said drill down on, that was such low-hanging fruit, but I stopped myself. So drill down on that. Uh, but maybe to kick things off, Andy, uh, tell us about this recent trip you had to Poland, uh, where, well, I guess you learned a little bit about KGHM. As much as there is to learn about KGHM, yeah. uh, they're not the world's most transparent company, as I've pointed out before. They gave a new five-year strategy in December, and it was very much the same as the previous strategy and didn't give a huge amount of clarity on very much. I thought I'd get more from my trip over there. Uh, we didn't. Uh, <laughs> management kind of introduced the analyst day and then went off to have a management board meeting immediately after the introduction, leaving us to ask questions to the, the underlings in, the, uh, <laughs> in, in this room for four hours. And when we were asking questions about numbers and so forth, usually they would not give a number and <laughs> uh, give a very long-winded answer which didn't really answer the question. So, uh, but the main takeaways were that, you know, look, production will be up this year. Uh, the maintenance of the smelter is done. Uh, there should be a working capital release as they sell down some inventories as well. That should be positive. However, this is all contingent upon a roaster working on-site. And talking to on-site management, that didn't seem to be a done deal as yet. They weren't, they didn't seem particularly confident of solving this issue. So I think that's still a large risk factor for KJHM uh, there. And then we talked a bit about Sierra Gorda, which is their project in Chile, yeah, which- JV with Sumitomo, right? It is indeed, and it, I'm just showing off now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the project they, they bought at the top of the market uh, when they bought Quadra FNX. Uh, it was not, uh, they spent a lot of money on it, and they haven't really generated any since. Uh, it's, the first five years were supposed to pay for the expansion of the project, where the molybdenum grades were high, and therefore cash costs should have been low. That has not been happening, and now we're getting into the period where this year they should complete the debottlenecking of a the project, they should have some upside in copper production, grade should also increase in, 20, in 2020-2021, but uh, the problem with that is that then the, the molybdenum grades will fall, the cash costs will probably not, uh, not go down, and I'd struggle to see how they're really going to generate any money sustainably once those molly grades drop off a cliff. And the ongoing stripping capex will remain high, so that asset remains problematic. So overall, it's still a play on copper. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there's not a huge amount of equity-specific reasons to 
to own the stock right what, now. What percentage of the business now, maybe from a revenue generative uh, perspective as they started to expand outside of Poland, are they generating from outside? I mean, they have Chile, they have Vancouver Island, at least near Victoria, or at least mm. they did. Mm. Uh, they have somewhere near Sudbury, I think, in Ontario, don't they? Yeah, as well? we have some Sudbury assets. Uh, Ajax, or somewhere a little bit closer. Yeah, uh, that's a development project. That's a development which project. Which isn't going anywhere anytime yeah. soon, because the locals won't let them. Yeah, which, interesting enough, remember the band Sum 41? I do. Yeah, they were from Ajax, Ontario. Did not know that. Maybe our listeners did, maybe they didn't. They can write in if they did, they can write in if they didn't. But uh, how much how much revenue do they actually generate outside of Poland? Uh, the revenue is fairly substantial. I can't think of the figure off the top of my head. But in terms of EBITDA... Yeah, and profitability, uh, and profitability is the big is issue. is yeah. relatively minor, I would say. I mean, largely it comes from Poland. Yeah. And that, it, well, that will continue. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's pe- people generally own KJHMs, a play on copper... Uh, if they are you know, constrained by index or whatever, or it looks particularly cheap at any one time, it doesn't look particularly cheap right now, in my view. Uh, and as the copper price is a binary thing, which is related to Trump's uh, trade war with China mm-hmm. on the first of March, they're due to put two hundred, I think it's two hundred billion dollars of tariffs on the Chinese. Yeah, unless they so, come to agreement. Unless that. they come to an agreement. So if that is pushed back, or if there is an agreement reached, copper will probably fly. If not, uh, it will probably uh, the, the brakes will be applied, and it will probably sell off, and KJHM will probably trade, essentially, with the copper price in the in the near term, uh, in the absence of any obvious company-specific drivers. Moving on to more precious metals uh, and going back to the theme of the day, which is gold. Um, we're in a fairly risk-on trading environment this year, as we've seen, uh, but the dollars started to edge a little bit higher uh, this month. Um, gold has rallied quite a bit. Do you think it's sustainable? Uh, well, look, last, last time we were talking about gold on the pod, uh, I was talking about John Reed's uh, presentation at uh, I think it was LME week. LME week, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he was noting at the time that short positions on Comex were the highest level in many years, and it was ripe for a short squeeze. And once the Fed, you know, started giving more sort of dovish signals, uh, I guess that was probably the uh, the catalyst for that <laughs> reversing to some extent. And it's up probably about. 10, 12 percent, something like that, since that since that time. Um, basically, it comes down to monetary policy at the end of the day. I mean, gold does well in a in a uh, in an environment of low interest rates. If the Fed kind of defers the idea of normalising rates, I think that's supportive of gold. I think all this global protectionism we're seeing is probably going to add to inflationary pressure. That's probably good for gold as well. I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, central banks were big buyers last year. Um, there's many reasons for that. Some of it is diversification away from the dollar in a kind of world in which uh, <laughs> Mr. Trump's foreign policy makes some countries a bit wary. So I, I think that trend probably remains. So there's a number of reasons to be positive on gold going into 2019, especially if we do see uh, further conflict between the US and China on trade, in which case it's probably a bearish signal for industrial metals and you know potentially a recessionary sort of scenario and gold is usually a pretty decent safe haven portfolio yeah, defensive. Defensive. yeah it's a defense it's a defensive play in a 
portfolio context, it does relatively low correlation with a lot of assets, and that's what you know holding some gold in your portfolio is usually a decent um, thing to do in times of turbulence. That that brings me to my next question. Gold has been range bound for the past five years or so, but in the preceding gold rally, gold stocks didn't necessarily perform along with that. Mm. Why could it be different this time? Uh, I think we asked that question to Vitaly, and he'll we'll see what his answer is to that. I mean, my perception in the previous rally when I was covering all these gold stocks uh, in Russia was that you know we saw when gold is going up usually steel is going up oil is oil is going up a lot of you know big cost inputs go up with it in addition companies tend to take into account kind of the lower grade areas of all bodies and there's a bit of low grading going on or less uh, or kind of more marginal projects are brought into mine plans so you tend to have real real cost inflation keeping pace with the gold price, which we saw in the last rally. And then all the service companies come in and they have large backlogs, so there's you know, they start jacking up their prices to charge to, to the miners. They you know the, the, the backlogs are lengthened and therefore a lot of projects are delayed. It's you have all these sort of issues which impact the miners when there's a you know, uh, rising gold price and everyone's chasing growth. So if if capital discipline remains in place, gold stocks can do very well. And with regard to polymetal, they're very um, keen to focus, the, you know, the minds of the investors on their view of capital discipline. They want to maintain a high dividend. They want to keep the balance sheet under control. They have, they are a growth company primarily, but they have, you know, strict um, views on, on hurdle rates and so forth, and, and they don't want to make to kind of repeat mistakes that many of their peers have made in the past. So, uh, I think if, if if that mantra remains, I think that's a reason for gold stocks to do pretty well uh, in a in a rally in contrast to what we've seen in the past. It's the holy grail, isn't it, of of cyclical stocks? If you can find somebody that understands that they should be counter cyclical in their spending. That they shouldn't blow their investments out when the prices are high. You've got one that you should you, you should hold on to. Yeah, I think is polymental has always been the case that everyone's viewed them as having strong management, good communication with the market. In contrast to some other gold names out there that might have better assets mm. in the public perception, mm. uh, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, I think polymetal has. Uh, a large collection of assets, and you know they don't have the mine lives that polyers have. Um, you know they've a large chunk of the um, reserve base is refractory or double refractory, as we discussed with yeah. Vitaly. And so Vitaly have, breaks that down for those of us that uh, were uninitiated. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they have, they have uh, some difficult assets, but I say the management team of Polymetal has generally been seen by investors, in my experience, as being kind of one of the better ones in the gold uh, industry and I think they do get a bit of a premium to some of their peers uh, as a result of that and they've consistently grown gold output over the years and in the time that I've been looking at them they've probably grown output by about 60% uh, so you know, they've, they've been a growth company they've been yielding on a dividend yield basis you know four or five percent for the last for the last few years uh, they're probably in that sort of ballpark right now. So it's a, it's a stock where you have a combination of you know, a pretty high dividend and also decent growth. They've got projects coming through. The Kurzil project is ramping up. Nejda will be coming through. 
uh, before too long. So in the next few years, they should have another 15 to 20% output growth as well as about 5% div yield. So it's a pretty decent combo. Um, and as I say, it's uh, we've got with a, with a supportive gold price environment, it's a stock that's uh, pretty well positioned and it's already up, you know, the last, since about September time, it's up about 40, 50% since then. So it's, uh, it's had a good run already. Uh, and it's an index stock now, Russia, so uh, yeah. a lot of people have to look at it as well. Yeah, I mean, gold is growing in the index. I mean, Polyus uh, you know, and Polymetal are a bigger part of the index than, than uh, they were. People yeah. are having to spend more time looking at them. Yeah. And uh, So I would recommend people listen to our interview with Vitaly. <laughs> yeah, coming up <laughs> so on the second half. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Andy, thank you for that. Uh, before we go to Vitaly, uh, our co-host uh, is also a guest today again, uh, Mr. Jonathan Lamb, uh, who has an update on Romanian oil and gas. Yes, thank you for inviting me on, Jan. <clears throat> so you've been it's sitting here quietly, which I think is the first time someone has ever said that to you in your life. <laughs> <laughs> so, as, as those of you that follow Romania will know, um, against some pretty stiff competition around the world, the, the politicians there have done a great job of, of being champions at shooting themselves in the foot. And when it comes to the gas market, they brought in um, a price cap for gas sold from domestic sources in Romania, which is at 68 ron per megawatt hour, which is very substantially below where the, the free market price would be. This has been a disaster for ron gas. It's been negative for Petrom. And it's kind of with this this is the overarching uh, issue that I'm dealing with in the, the note, how it affects these two companies um, and whether it means you should turn your back on, on Romania and walk away or not. And I think it's, it's a shame because both companies are extremely attractive, the underlying story. There's reasons why you might not want to, to sell them if you have them, but with the kind of regulatory uh, what's the word uncertainty at the moment you know it, I would understand trepidation um, and we have seen such from OMV which has, has said they're, they're really not ready to pull the, the um, stops off and get going with the Neptune project while all this is up in the air and while they can't trust the Romanian authorities not to uh, hit them with something else further down the road I don't think it's because the gas cap price cap itself is really negative for that project, but it's just a matter of perception. Um, would you rather invest somewhere where there's more stability or in a market where a government has, has com completely out of the blue hit hit the business with something like this? Rongaz is going to start uh, exporting gas uh, fairly shortly here, I think. Yes. Um, this is one of the reasons why I say you can't just ignore these companies. Romgas gets the chance to export gas to Hungary in 2020. There's a pipeline that should be completed by then, the Brewer pipeline. The second part of that project is on hold because it needs the gas from Neptune, but the first part is going ahead. And the wonderful thing about selling to uh, those evil foreigners across the border is that you're allowed to sell at whatever price you like, whereas the good, hard-working Romanians deserve gas to be sold at a lower price. So they'll not only be able to increase their volumes, but they'll be able to sell at a better price as well. And 
in that particular context, uh, I mean, if you have local price caps, is there a restriction on how much gas that they can actually send abroad? There are restrictions. Um, I think uh, at the moment they have to sell 50% of their gas on the, the local hubs because we're probably looking at something like 20-25% increase in volumes in order to be able to export. I don't think those regulations are going to get in the way. And in the case of Petron, um, given the fact that they don't have to wrap up the CapEx uh, if they're not going to start the Neptune project soon, do you think they could increase dividends in the interim? My base case scenario, what I think is most likely to happen is that we have some period of, of postponement and then they'll go ahead with it. And if, if that's like a 12-month, 18-month period, I don't see them boosting dividends in, in the, the meantime. If they have to put it on for, off for longer than that, I mean, they, they're just sitting on a pile of cap cash that makes the guys from Breaking Bad look like they're, <laughs> they've got no, no money left. Um, and they have a Heisenberg really, amount the, of cash. Yeah, Heisenberg amount of cash. And um, they don't really have anything else to do with it. So if they're not going to be able to do this, I would expect them to, to boost their dividend, but I don't think we'll see that in the short term. That's the thing. We, uh, we should probably point this out. You like to insert various little Jonathan trademarks into every one of your notes. Mm -hmm. Little words, I you put dainty in one yeah. that we asked you to. It's a little bit of a challenge that we have. I would like to, to see you put Heisenberg-esque in that, another one of your notes. That is a fantastic word. I accept the challenge. <laughs> um, one, of, one of the funnier ones I put in note was as I used the phrase with gay abandon. Yes. And, of course, if you're a, a native English speaker, you understand what this means. If English is your second language, it sounds rather strange. And uh, one of my colleagues phoned me up to ask me what it meant. <laughs> Which is a good way to see who reads your report. That's what I was going to say, the next one. Inserting little pineapples in there. Is there anything else you want to comment on? Floor is yours as a guest. Thank you for it. Um, I just want to point out that, you know, even after all this, Romgas is still a great dividend stock. Mm -hmm. um, they will pay out... A, uh, double-figure dividend yield this year, perhaps down a little bit next year because this year will be a difficult year because of the price caps, but then with the exports that comes back, so it, that's something that you should have a look at before making up your mind. With Romgas, take it back to the big picture. Um, they're dipping their water outside of... <laughs> they're dipping their yeah, toes. Yeah, get your... <laughs> Well, everyone's looking at me funny, and rightfully so, uh, testing out a new tongue again today. Yeah. So uh, they're dipping their toes in the waters outside of Romania. Well done. Yes. They are dipping their toes in the waters outside, of, in foreign waters. Yes. In fact, maybe even in the Caspian. Maybe. It, that, which leads me to my next point. Caspian Lake. The Caspian Lake, which we were battling yesterday. I believe it, that, that it has been finally resolved, and it is a sea. Can we have someone... It looks a lot like a lake to me. It, it, it does resemble, lake. yeah. It's salty. Um. <laughs> so if anyone's listening that can resolve this for us, we don't want to spoil it and go on Wikipedia and find out for ourselves. Write us, call us, let and, us know. Let us know whether it's a lake or a sea. Yeah, we'll get into whether a hot dog is a sandwich or whether cereal is soup another day. Okay, with that, yes, there, there's these talks with Sokar about doing various different things. Um, it's very, very early days, but the very, the very fact that their business is being constrained in Romania seems to be pushing them towards maybe doing something outside. Um, 
and Azerbaijan was one of the places that they uh, are looking at and I think it's because Romania is potentially a, a transit point for Azeri gas so it makes sense for Sokar to make friends with the Romanians for that part of the business and then you know in this business it's all quote quid quo mm -hmm. um, I give you this you give uh, you take that in, in my home yeah. territory so quid pro quo quid pro quo that's the one <laughs> yeah. yeah I'm trying to get a new title yeah. as well jo Jonathan <laughs> I blame it on CTE getting hit in the head so many times for hockey the only way I've ever really killed my brain cells has been with um, imbibing certain liquids but <laughs> I think for me it's bashing my head against a brick wall throwing answers out of some of my companies but that's uh... <laughs> I've seen it in person, as highlighted this week. Uh, okay, I guess uh, we'll go next to the, the interview with uh, Vitali Nessis, CEO of Polymetal, talking gold and uh, actually quite a bit of hockey, too. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week. Cheers. <laughs> well, we are here with Vitali Nessis, the CEO of Polymetal. At a nice hotel. We just got done with a good hockey talk. We, yep, yep. We uh, had a pretty good story about uh, the uh, 2010 Olympics and how Canada won the gold medal. Sidney Crosby in overtime. Don't rub it in, please. <laughs> um, joined today by uh, Andy Jones, our medals and mining analyst, who, as he is the most educated on this and eloquent. He's making a frowny face right now, but it's true. Uh, he's going to pose most of the questions and we're going to talk a little bit about gold today. So Andy, why don't you uh, kick us off? Yeah, well it's a good time to be talking about gold. Gold prices often doing very well. Gold equities are generally doing very well as well. Polypathals up a lot. I mean, what are your general thoughts on, as it the gold price from here, the gold equities in general, how you see potentially this cycle, if this does turn into a sustained bull run, being different from the last one where maybe the equities didn't do quite as well as we would have hoped in the previous cycle. How are you feeling today? I remain uh, agnostic about the future direction of gold prices. Uh, they are notoriously hard to predict and uh, driven mostly by uh, macroeconomic geopolitical events uh, uh, outside of anybody's uh, sphere uh, of uh, competence or powers of prediction. Uh, at the same time, I believe that regardless of the movements of gold prices, gold equities uh, are looking much better than the last cycle around. Uh, obviously, many companies, not all companies, but many companies have learned the lessons of the previous cycle, uh, have now adapted uh, a much more disciplined approach to capital allocation, um, much more investor-friendly approach to strategy, uh, and I expect a stronger average performance uh, of gold equities in this cycle. Excellent. And uh, we've seen quite a lot of activity in the global gold sector recently. I mean, Barrick and Rangold have been uh, joining up. There's this Gold, uh, gold Corp Newmont merger going on. Uh, what do you make of this recent trend in global M&A? Do you see any of this in, in impacting on the regions that you're active in? Well, uh, you know, let's be realistic. It's hard to imagine that uh, a uh, 
uh, a major North American uh, producer or an Australian producer uh, would venture to spend a lot of money in the former Soviet Union. Uh, this is highly unlikely, I would say improbable. Uh, and uh, uh, the potential for uh, uh, intra-regional consolidation uh, I think is quite limited because uh, in many cases such transactions are driven uh, uh, by uh, the uh, views uh, and appetites uh, of equity investors and uh, uh, there are just too few public companies in the FSU uh, gold space. And uh, I think the largest companies like Polymetal and Polus uh, don't have M&A as their top priority uh, currently. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, I think uh, any uh, large-scale M&A activity uh, which attracts attention to the sector from the generalists um, is a welcome uh, phenomenon. Uh, whatever uh, gets uh, uh, the uh, journalist uh, investors' appetites uh, up vis-a-vis uh, -vis the gold sector uh, uh, is a positive development and uh, I hope that uh, uh, in the aftermath of these two very large transactions, uh, uh, smaller names like ourselves also will uh, draw increased attention uh, from investors. Oh, excellent. And, uh, and yourselves as a company, you've been divesting assets in recent times. I mean, is this process still ongoing? Uh, and can you give us an idea for how you expect your portfolio of mines to look in five years' time? What are your criteria for keeping assets within the group or trying to get rid of these ones? In terms of uh, the portfolio streamlining, I think we did the easy part. Uh, we sold uh, uh, producing assets which didn't fit uh, uh, our criteria. Now we are down to a more difficult bit. Uh, we need to prune the uh, development stage portfolio. Uh, obviously, given uh, the sideways uh, direction of the gold market and the continued geopolitical overhand over Russia, it will be a tall order. Uh, however, uh, I remain uh, uh, quietly optimistic that given enough time, uh, we'll be able uh, to dispose uh, uh, of these uh, assets because they are fundamentally good assets, uh, just not large enough uh, for the company uh, of our size. Uh, turning to the second part of your question, uh, you know, in five years down the line, uh, uh, we definitely will try to ensure that our portfolio is focused. Uh, we don't want to have too many. Uh, operations and I think TAN is probably uh, the uh, very uh, upper limit of uh, what we may have. Uh, I think uh, the focus is shifting um, uh, away, slightly away from a very high grade towards just high grades uh, and uh, uh, we are giving significantly uh, more weight uh, to the longevity of our assets. Uh, so if before we would be happy to have a four or five year uh, life of mine, uh, if uh, an operation had very good grade and very strong cash flows, I think now uh, we would uh, prefer uh, maybe a, a less frothy cash flow, uh, but uh, the cash flow which uh, can be reliably forecast for 15, 20 years into the future. And that is uh, uh, the direct uh, impact of uh, uh, the investor preferences that we get on board. There's a lot of our investors are interested in stable, long-term, predictable dividend flow. 
and less interested in very short-term spikes. Uh, so we are trying uh, to be, uh, we can't really be a utility of the mining, but we want to demonstrate some of the utility-like features, including first and foremost, stable and significant dividend. Mm, understood. And uh, today I went to your presentation on the uh, Pox Hub 2, your second pressure oxidation hub, uh, which will be used to process a lot of double refractory ores from your growth projects such as Kurzil and uh, Nejda, which is coming down the line. Uh, can you talk us through the strategic rationale for this expansion and what are the advantages to building your own capacity versus your current strategy of selling a lot of this stuff to, uh, to China? Yeah, maybe I might say at this stage, uh, for the uninitiated, maybe you could explain uh, to the audience what refractory and non-refractory gold are and pressure oxidization. Yeah, sure, I think this is a very good uh, place to start. Uh, you know, the uh, single most important technology used to produce gold uh, is cyanidation. Uh, you know, more or less you dissolve gold in cyanide. Uh, and uh, the ores that can be uh, treated by this method uh, called non-refractory or free milling. Uh, sometimes uh, the gold uh, cannot be dissolved by cyanide because sulfides uh, pretty much interfere with the process. So this ore is called single refractory. You need to uh, destroy the sulfides and then leach uh, the remainder uh, with cyanide. Uh, now, uh, there is uh, uh, another type of ores which is uh, even more challenging. After you break the sulfide matrix, if you have uh, organic carbon present in the ore, this carbon will steal the gold from cyanide solution. So, in order to overcome the carbon, you need to destroy carbon as well. And uh, this is the double refractory type of war. Uh, you know, all this was uh, probably pretty peripheral to the global gold industry 30, 40 years ago, because the vast majority of gold was produced from free milling ore or in the form of concentrates uh, from polymetallic operations. Uh, nowadays, uh, uh, approximately 25% uh, of uh, global gold production is produced from refractory ores. Uh, and uh, I think this is 2015 data. Uh, I, I uh, read the reports that by 2025, 40% of global gold will be produced from refractory ores. So this is increasingly a very significant factor in the industry. You need new technologies, uh, you need new approaches, uh, and uh, the fundamental economics of gold production is different. Uh, that's why we uh, were one of the first companies in the former Soviet Union to actually move into the refractory gold processing. Um, uh, and uh, we started with uh, uh, the technology called pressure oxidation, mm -hmm. which is used to break the sulfide uh, uh, to liberate the gold. Uh, there are several technologies available, pressure oxidation is one of them. Uh, without going into too much details, it's more expensive in terms of capital. Mm -hmm. However, it's cheaper in terms of OPEX and it's cleaner because it generates significantly less uh, liquid and gaseous effluents with toxic components. Uh, so that uh, that's why pretty much we selected uh, pressure oxidation and we were prepared to pay more for it up front in order to enjoy its considerable advantages down the line. 
So the first uh, pressure oxidation facility we built and launched in 2012 uh, is able to deal only with single refractory material. However, the second project that we presented today to the investor analyst community will be able to deal with double refractory stuff as well. I think uh, if it doesn't work out as a CEO, you could be a professor. That was very, that's a very good explanation. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, well, actually, um, uh, 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 you know, well, I heard that if you cannot uh, explain it well, you probably don't understand it. <laughs> the best way to learn is to explain it yourself, so there you go. Yeah. And uh, now, uh, <clears throat> uh, turning to the question about the benefits of the new project, I would say they are threefold. Uh, first of all, uh, simple economic benefits. Uh, as I have mentioned, uh, the uh, pressure oxidation is cheaper uh, versus uh, uh, what we are currently doing. And currently, we sell stuff to China, uh, uh, to Chinese off-takers. Uh, it's uh, uh, both cheaper in terms of operating costs, and uh, we achieve higher recovery. So we get more revenues, and we have uh, uh, less costs. Um, now, but obviously, we need to spend quite a bit of capital to achieve that. The second strategic benefit is uh, pretty much independence uh, of uh, the Chinese concentrate market. Uh, and there, uh, the risk is in the continued environmental tightening uh, in the country, uh, which uh, may lead, uh, which in our opinion is very likely to lead uh, to the worsening of offtake conditions in the long term. Pretty much uh, we believe the Chinese government will start to penalize our offtakers, our partners, for their duty processing methods, and uh, our offtakers will pass on those costs to us, the suppliers. Uh, so we want to isolate polymetal uh, from this risk, and uh, we want to uh, be independent uh, of uh, um, uh, China, uh, and this is particularly important given that in five years' time, um, more than half of our production, corporate production, will come from refractory ores. Tremendous. <coughs> Excellent. And, and given your growing expertise in uh, refractory ore processing, do you see any potential greenfield assets that you may be targeting you know, at some point of the future or you feel that this may put you in a better position to go after at some point in, in Russia? And it, do you see many assets that have come from sort of previous exploration, maybe in Soviet times, which may be out there for you to uh, take advantage of as a result of having this capacity? Or uh, is that, is, do you see that as a side benefit in any way? Um, you know, I would, I would like to give a uh, more nuanced answer to that. Uh, probably there are no uh, known large assets uh, that are suitable for, uh, you know, development uh, in the immediate future. Uh, however, in the Soviet times, when the geologists uh, realized uh, that uh, a small deposit or the prospect was represented by refractory ore, they just moved on because there was no technology, they didn't want to bother with it. And I think that's where the opportunity lies, not in buying up uh, the ready ounces, but in buying up prospective exploration ground uh, where uh, there is gold and it's refractory gold and uh, nobody paid much attention to that. Uh, but now, you know, with uh, 
the technology available, um, uh, these answers can be very valuable. Mm. And do, do you see your, um, as a result of that, do you see your exploration strategy changing in the near future in order to target all of these new perspective refractory resources? Would you be, do you think there's been enough spending on exploration in the past in, within polymetal, or do you expect to increase that in the future, or is it, um, do you see any change in the way you're going to look for those new answers in Russia? Well, I think uh, we always have spent pretty heavily on exploration, so I think the size of our exploration budget, which is at about $70 million per year, uh, is appropriate for the company of our size. Uh, the approach to exploration is changing. Uh, as we shrink our asset base, uh, there is uh, uh, less money spent on near-mine exploration, because now there are some assets where there is no point uh, in spending on near mine exploration. Mm -hmm. When you have 25 years of mine life, mm -hmm. uh, I think you're fine. Yeah. Uh, obviously, when you have a bunch of mines with four or five year mine life, mm -hmm. you need to drill, um, otherwise uh, you will end up with uh, the asset closing down. Mm -hmm. This is, by the way, one of the reasons we want uh, to uh, move towards longer-lived uh, asset portfolio. Mm -hmm. uh, and as uh, uh, funds are freed up by the decrease in near mine exploration uh, we obviously uh, uh, invest more in greenfield exploration and uh, in some cases uh, uh, it's uh, the kind of going over the historical results uh, and uh, looking at uh, the uh, ground which uh, has been ignored due to the metallurgical challenges uh, but also recently uh, we uh, initiated a couple of programs where we explore not from the bottom up, uh, from the known facts, but from the top down, uh, where we posit uh, the likelihood uh, of the presence uh, of uh, specific mineralization in the area, and then uh, start with really large uh, uh, programs, large-scale programs, to uh, first determine which areas are prospective and then narrow down the search to the areas where uh, it makes sense to drill. Uh, just to give you a sense of what I'm talking about, instead of uh, sending tens of geologists picking up grab samples out there, uh, we, for example, last year did a 2,500 square kilometer error uh, geomagnetic survey in the Urals to target specifically uh, uh, the VMS type of mineralization. Mm. Uh, and uh, although we haven't really met any success <laughs> so far, I think this is the future of greenfield exploration in Russia, uh, just uh, searching uh, uh, from uh, the top down, uh, taking into account the structural considerations mm. and uh, really looking for the type of mineralization rather than uh, kind of uh, finding a rock and then deciding that this rock uh, should lead, this rock's type of mineralization is the one you should search for. Uh, I think uh, th this uh, does require a bit of a cultural change uh, among uh, geologists, uh, but uh, I think we uh, have already made some progress and uh, uh, the first results uh, have already been received. And uh, Polymetal has consistently been growing production ever since IPO. You're paying a you know, circa 5% dividend yield. Um, obviously, both of those are 
of uh, impressive. I mean, how do you see the trade-off going forward? I mean, what, how do you prioritise your uh, your capital spend in the future? I mean, between, between say dividends, between capex, between uh, deleveraging. I mean, what? How do you prioritise those three or rank them in order of? Importance to the well, I think uh, uh, we view the regular dividend um, uh, as uh, uh, the undisputable entitlement on the part of shareholders. Uh, so after we pay our current bills, the regular dividend is definitely number one priority. Uh, there can be no growth projects unless uh, the regular dividend is paid. Uh, after the uh, the regular dividend is paid. The competition is clearly between growth projects uh, and debt reduction, and uh, I think here uh, there is uh, no formulaic uh, approach to making the right decision. Yes, we do have uh, uh, the internal uh, leverage target, uh, which is to drive the net debt uh, GPD below 1.5. Um, however, we are also deeply uh, aware of the fact. Uh, that certain external trends need to be addressed. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, uh, it may so happen that you will have no debt, but no business as well. Yes. Uh, hence, uh, our decision to invest uh, in uh, uh, POX2, even though that may delay um, uh, the achievement uh, of the leverage target. And uh, this is, uh, by the way, uh, the uh, area of interest, the topic where the board discussions are most active, uh, where different board members sometimes have different priorities, different financial risk tolerances, uh, and where uh, the management uh, uh, is, uh, I think, focused on bringing the capital markets perspective to the board, uh, on uh, informing the board of what is viewed as optimal, appropriate, uh, or imprudent yeah. uh, by institutional shareholders. Uh, uh, but overall, I, I would say that uh, given the strength of our portfolio, uh, given the uh, uh, discipline in uh, maintaining the portfolio, uh, unless we see drastic deterioration in gold prices, we should be able to achieve both goals. Uh, we should be able uh, to press on uh, with our highly concentrated uh, growth project pipeline and to reduce leverage uh, to the level uh, which we believe uh, is appropriate for uh, the company and our industry and of our size. Excellent. And just to, uh, to finish up, I mean, looking at your, your share price in terms of that dividend yield, a lot of the global majors are averaging like 1% dividend yields. I mean, I remember being in Denver a few years ago and the CEO of Barrick bragging about having a 1% dividend yield back in those days. And also on multiples, the stock looks relatively, uh, relatively cheap compared to a lot, of the, a lot of the North American majors, for example, and so forth. What do you put a lot of that down to? It? Is, it, is it all largely sort of Russian risk factor? or And how do you sort of see a lot of that differential being sort of closed going forward? And what do you see driving the share price over the next 12 months? Well, uh, let me kind of unpick uh, uh, the this, uh, uh, several questions. Uh, the first question is uh, uh, related to the dividend yields uh, in North America and in London. And uh, I think the difference reflects the fundamental difference uh, in uh, investor motivation 
for owning the gold stock. Uh, a North American investor buying a share in a gold company is buying a share in a gold company. Uh, and uh, uh, the attraction of a gold company is a uh, significant leverage to gold price. Hopefully, yeah, it hasn't happened last cycle, <laughs> but you know, uh, hopes die hard. Uh, but still, uh, North American investors uh, uh, buy uh, stocks like Barrick uh, because uh, they believe uh, there is a substantial probability gold price will rally and will create a lot of value for that investor. Uh, our average London-based shareholder doesn't really care that much about the commodity we produce. Uh, our average investor cares very much about uh, the sustainability of our dividend and the absolute level of our dividend. As a result, uh, a North American investor can swallow up low dividend yield and uh, a North American investor uh, is happy uh, uh, to invest in companies with a huge a pile of cash sitting on uh, the balance sheet waiting for the next crazy or outright stupid deal to come <laughs> around. Yeah. Uh, obviously, our shareholders, our investors uh, would not countenance uh, such behavior and uh, they uh, push back at us to maintain uh, you know, laser focus on cash flow generation uh, and profit distribution. So we uh, uh, pretty much we peel uh, uh, Polymetal and North American gold companies. We peel to two mm. very different mm. uh, types of investors. Uh, and uh, if you look at London-based gold companies, mm. uh, I don't think there is uh, any Russian discount yeah. anymore mm. uh, implied in Polymetal valuation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, I would uh, uh, go as far as to argue that we deserve a premium. <laughs> of course, of course, uh, we are such a great company. <laughs> Uh, but there is no discount. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of uh, the catalysts uh, this year, mm -hmm. uh, we have uh, really just started execution on uh, the two new big projects, mm -hmm. Nejda and Pox2. Mm -hmm. uh, we definitely will not be embarking upon any new project until mm -hmm. Nejda is completed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're totally disinterested in buy-side M&A mm -hmm. over the next 18 months at least. Mm -hmm and maybe more. Uh, so the uh, potential kind of one-off catalyst would relate uh, hopefully to the successful delivery of our asset disposal program. Mm -hmm. And uh, also I'm hopeful that uh, we will be able to pleasantly surprise investors with a couple of uh, exploration results. Mm -hmm. uh, so those would be uh, the focus in addition obviously to the steady delivery mm -hmm. against the production guidance, against the cost guidance, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously paying uh, uh, the, the regular dividend. Mm -hmm. Understood. Well, thank, thank you very much. And uh, I'll throw in one last one for fun. Sure. Who's the best Russian hockey player of all time? Is it Ovechkin or Fedorov? No, I, my, my favorite is Alexander McGillney. Oh, McGillney was great. Uh, 89. And, yeah, and he actually is the president of the hockey club that uh, I am a fan of. He's Amur the president Khabarovsk. of Amur Khabarovsk. He lives in Khabarovsk. He's the... Uh, uh, he, he was born in Khabarovsk, he grew up there, and uh, I'm, uh, you know, in, in Russia there is such a concept as uh, uh, residence registration. Uh, 
yeah. uh, regardless of where you live, you have to have uh, your residency registration. That's where you uh, pay your personal income tax. Um, so I'm personally registered in Khabarovsk, in Amursk, actually, yeah. uh, to kind of support the local economy. So obviously, I, I'm a huge fan of Amur, and I'm a huge fan of Alexander McGillney. Uh, it's funny you mentioned McGillney. I heard a great story on another podcast this uh, this weekend. Um, Adrian Acoin, who played in the NHL for a long time in Vancouver, and he played with him in Vancouver, and said that uh, he was one of the best personalities, one of the nicest guys yeah. ever met. He said that uh, when he got sent down to the minors in Albany, uh, when he's playing for New Jersey, uh, he went up to the coach and said, um, how much is the fine if I miss practice? And the coach said, $250. So he sat there and got a schedule out of all the practices for the rest of the year and said, signed a check and put it there and said, I'm not coming to practice the rest of the year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he's, he's very down to earth uh, and, uh, you know, uh, grew up in a... Uh, uh, working uh, class family on the outskirts of Khabarovsk, which was a pretty bleak city in the Soviet times. You know, uh, very militarized, right on the border with China. Yeah. Uh, lots of guns uh, and uh, very little food. And uh, but still, he's very jovial. Yeah. Uh, uh, very friendly. Uh, and uh, sometimes we meet at the hockey games. Oh, nice. And uh, you know, uh, he's a great guy. Well, uh, I'd like to have his goal-scoring prowess, 80-plus goals in Buffalo, rub off on me in my adult league. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much, Vitaly. And uh, we hope to talk to you again sometime. Sure. Thank you.